Marshall here. Welcome to the second episode of my new Saturday podcast, Ari Something Interesting, dropped on the Realignment feed. In case you missed last week's debut episode with Max Marshall, which, by the way, I highly recommend you check out, about fraternities, drug culture, and crime, Ari Something Interesting is my new venue for exploring interesting topics outside the Realignment's traditional focus on politics and policy. Today, I'm speaking with Garrett M. Graff, a Pulitzer Prize finalist for his recent work on Watergate and New History. Garrett has a new book out, UFO, The Inside Story of the U.S. Government's Search for Alien Life Here and Out There. Regardless of where you come down on the topic, this conversation and Garrett's book is a great starting point. You can purchase UFO and last week's Among the Bros by Max Marshall at the Realignment's bookshop. I've got a link below. It helps support the show and independent booksellers as well. And definitely write in with any comments or feedback on this new format to realignmentpod at gmo.com. Hope you all enjoy the conversation. Garrett Graff, welcome to RE Something Interesting. Thank you so much for having me. So excited to speak with you. Your last book was about Watergate. I was going to kind of say, like, it's so surprising that you're writing this this history of Watergate and the 70s, this like epic moment in our history. Then you're going to do UFO books. But for me, there's a very obvious narrative tie between Watergate, conspiracy, suspicion of government, and the underlying themes of when you start delving into the UAP, UFO discourse. So that's kind of like my thinking out loud, understanding how you could tie these two together if you're thinking about these things. But like, what's your version of that uh, answer to that question? Yeah, you are absolutely right. And uh, it's an incredibly astute observation because I, um, you know, I, I write about national security and the presidency and, and American politics. And in a weird way, I sort of think of my books as existing in like a comic cinematic universe um, where like all of the books are sort of interrelated to one another and the same characters like appear in book after book after book. One of the things that really does stand out is, you know, this, this book sort of tries to tell really the last 80 year history of America's fascination with UFOs and extraterrestrials, um, you know, and, and weaves together the, you know, military's hunt for UFOs here with the pop culture that we have lived through that has sort of captured the, the, the public's fascination, and then the emerging science and astronomy that pulls together, you know, our expanding knowledge of the universe and sort of where, where we exist. The second half of the book, though, has this very clear thread of how UFO conspiracy theory, which sort of really appears in the late 70s and early 80s, post Watergate, tells the story of the collapse of American trust and truth in, in institutions and in our government. Um, and in some ways actually uh, presages a lot of the wackiness and conspiracism of our modern politics in ways that I think are actually more direct and linked than most people realize and understand. One of my theses in talking about the book, I don't get into this too deep in the book, is you don't end up with Donald Trump and January 6th without the sort of dark UFO conspiracy theories that are laid in American society in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And that's really in many ways where the deep state first emerges in you know American public opinion and American culture and you see these figures one in particular Bill Cooper who is one of the sort of original UFO conspiracists in the 1980s uh, drift into the fringe of the American far right Bill Cooper sort of tries to blow up blow the lid off the government cover-up around UFOs in the 1980s, then becomes actually a leading conservative talk radio host in the 1990s, where he inspires a uh, young Austin, Texas public access talk show host named 
Alex Jones to get into talk radio. Alex Jones uh, takes a lot of inspiration from Bill Cooper and his style. Uh, and then the two men have this like really nasty public falling out after 9-11 when Alex Jones sort of drifts into 9-11 trutherism and Bill Cooper thinks, uh, you know, that basically Alex Jones is lying to the American people. You are, you are a writer. I am a podcast interviewer. So at a core level, what we're doing is we are giving narratives to readers, listeners, et cetera, and words obviously matter. Do you worry about using the word conspiracy, conspiracist, conspiracy theorist? Because you starting off by using that language, as someone who knew nothing about UFOs before reading your book, I'm just telling you I'm automatically putting everything UFO, UAP in that box and in that category. So when you're writing a book like this, and given the partisan nature of these terms, like, how would you describe someone's interested in UFOs? Because I just think the second we say conspiracist, it goes out the window. I would love to hear what you think about that. Yeah, and, and a big part of why I chose to do this book as I did, which is these sort of twin threads of the military's hunt for UFOs here and the emerging astronomy and science of the, uh, the sort of search for extraterrestrial intelligence, what's called SETI, um, out there across the universe, is... Journalists and historians normally try to tell these things as totally separate stories. Like you have wacky, kooky, crazy UFO people here, and then you have the serious, thoughtful science people who do the astronomy work that's like real and thoughtful about understanding life elsewhere. Now, they're not two separate stories. The question of whether aliens are visiting Earth is very tightly linked to the question of whether aliens exist at all. And so trying to tell this story as a united, coherent story over the last 80 years was a big part of why I wanted to do this book in this way. Because what attracted me to the subject is you know the new york times and the and politico in 2017 had this blockbuster reporting around you know that the pentagon had basically been running a secret ufo study program sponsored by senator harry reeds then senator harry reed and that reporting ended up causing a pretty important shift in the discourse around what we sort of used to call ufos now we call UAPs unidentified anomalous phenomenon, and, and we can talk about sort of why that change happened and why that matters. But you began to see serious people talking seriously about UFOs and UAPs. And there was one very specific moment that I, as a national security writer, sat up and paid attention to this, which was in... December, John Brennan gives an interview to the economist Tyler Cowen, where John Brennan basically says, yeah, you know, there's some stuff flying around up there that we don't know what it is, and it puzzles us. And John Brennan at that point was wrapping up sort of the better part of a decade as the director of the CIA. And the, before that, the White House Homeland Security Advisor. He's a career intelligence officer, had risen to the top ranks of the CIA uh, as an intelligence officer. And I said to myself, you know, there probably aren't too many things that puzzle John Brennan. Like when John Brennan wakes up in the morning with a question, he has been in a position for a decade where he can deploy tens of thousands of analysts and officers and surveillance networks and signal intelligence intercepts and satellites to answer any question that he has. You know, we spend $60 billion a year on intelligence. And every morning when John Brennan woke up from 2009 to 2017, that was at his fingertips. At the end of that, if he's puzzled about the things that are flying around around us, 
that's probably worth diving into and talking more about. And what I think you end up with um, is that there is something real here, that there is a phenomenon that is worthy of study, that there are things that we cannot explain, and we don't really know what they are. And at the same time, there can be fascinating and interesting and meaningful and insightful and world-changing answers to those questions and have it still not be aliens from Alpha Centauri who happen to be buzzing by the USS Nimitz on a random Tuesday. And to me, that was sort of what captured my interest in this book was the way that we talk about these things, the way that we think about these things, what it says about us as humans, and also the, the sort of incredible hope and optimism of what exploring these answers could mean for our world and our understanding of our own place in the world. So I would love for you to distinguish between a UFO and UAP. My thesis, which I want you to disprove in your answer, is that the reason why we're separating these things is kind of explained by the, you know, one of the first sentences in your book, which is that UFOs literally do exist and that there are unidentified, unidentified flying objects. So you cannot just treat a UFO as the equivalent of aliens, you know, like these, these are actually like two different things. So like, that's kind of like my like theory here. I'd love to hear like your explanation yeah. of like the distinguishing factor. Yeah. And there's some fun history wrapped up in this, right? So the modern age of UFOs begins in 1947, the summer of 1947, um, with the spotting of what are sort of basically then the first flying saucers. And um, this is this sort of sets off this uh, sort of waves of UFO sightings are called flaps in ufology, which is the uh, you know sort of quasi science of UFOs. And the first flying saucer flap is over the course of the summer of 1947. And that, by the way, is when the Roswell uh, crash happens and is reported and that's sort of its own funny story that we can get into at some point if we want to um and the government begins to sort of try to figure out what these things are and it's an incredibly important moment in national security this is the the dawn of the cold war the like literal first months of the Air Force as a standalone military service in the fall of 1947. Um, you know, the FBI is involved in this and uh, flying saucer sightings are reported in, you know, upwards of 34 states and everyone is puzzled about what these things are. And the challenge is, love to, yeah, love to add too to this history. You also are in, a, are in a really interesting transition point when it comes to aviation. So you just have yes. the jet is new. You have jet, you have jets. You have like the Delta wing. They're always like, like the, you know, the flying wing. They're they're always like so planes just look different than they look. So like you have all these factors in one specific period. Yes, it, and that's not unrelated to the the sort of panic in that moment, which is the government, the Air Force. It, isn't particularly concerned that these are aliens. Like, you know, one of the sort of disconnects is that almost no one initially starts off thinking these are aliens and flying saucers. The military's concern is that these are secret Soviet spacecraft being built by kidnapped Nazi rocket scientists. Because what is the US doing at that moment? We are building our own rockets and the sort of early stages of the space race with Nazi rocket scientists that we have brought to the United States um, uh, in what was known as Operation Paperclip and sort of trying to like build these rockets in secret out west in places like the White Sands Proving Grounds um, in New Mexico. So we're afraid that the Soviets are sort of spying on us with these secret flying saucers. The government then realizes that they're not secret Soviet spy craft, and the government sort of loses interest in them um, in an amusing way. But as part of its study, 
they try to decrease the giggle factor of talking about flying saucers and, and try to destigmatize the term by popularizing this new term unidentified flying objects and so sort of ufo why, wait, why, why would why do they want to de why did why does the government want to destigmatize it because they want people to come forward and talk about what these things are and they're sort of people are sort of beginning to laugh about these flying saucer sightings and also they're sort of running into an issue where not all of these things are not all of the weird sightings and encounters are saucer shaped so they come up with this term ufo to encompass sort of any object that is flying and unidentified a couple decades go by ufos is now the thing that everyone giggles about and as the government is sort of setting out, um, you know, in the last 10 or 15 years to try to study this more seriously again, they uh, again try to rebrand it, taking from UFOs to UAPs, which they begin to talk about as uh, unidentified aerial phenomenon, which is a way to distinguish that not all of these things are objects. Some of them might be natural phenomenon that we are trying to identify. And then they rebranded again to what UAP now stands for, which is unidentified anomalous phenomenon to capture that not all of these things are flying. That actually one of the things, for instance, that the Pentagon has uncovered as part of its UAP study in recent years is a heretofore unknown Chinese transmedium drone, which is to say a Chinese drone that comes out of the water and transitions to flight, which was a technology that the US did not realize China possessed until it began to run down these sort of modern UAP sightings. So now we have UAPs, which is sort of anything strange that you see anywhere that may or may not be an object. So this is where you need to push back on my naivete because the audience always push, pushes back on me. I, having read so much of the history that you spent your time working on, I'm just convinced at all costs that government is not fundamentally capable of the conspiracy required to hide the things that people allege are being hidden. And whenever folks counter and reference previous conspiracies, insert CIA reference, insert Watergate, insert Iran-Contra, I just as a you know mid-level, mid-professional historian just would note that the circumstances, A, there's a reason we know about all those things. So that tells you something about discoverability. Um, but B, they also reflect a fundamentally different era of American government politics and incentive processes. Um, so I'm just fundamentally skeptical of it. So here's the real question. You think of like, you know, the term state capacity, like in terms of our ability to do things, like what is our governmental conspiracy state capacity relative to like 40s, 50s, 60s, 80s? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's one that I spent a lot of time sort of thinking through and peeling back as I looked at this. As someone who has covered national security for a long time, my general challenge with government conspiracy theories is that they presuppose a level of competence that is not on display in most of the rest of the work that the government does. That they that they sort of it, it require a level of like skill and forethought and planning that the government really doesn't display in most of the work that it does. It's not just skill and planning. It's also just the incentive process because yes, like like who show me the major with a debt or gambling problem who doesn't take this information and go public with like yes. actual discernible proof gets a book deal goes to jail but still like but people people have just we've had we've had numerous defectors. So now that said, there is a government cover up around UFOs. There is information that the government is hiding about its knowledge and understanding of UFOs. Again, that doesn't necessarily end with the sort of public conclusion that the government has crashed alien spaceships and bodies in a hangar under Area 51. So what do I mean by that? The 
there are sort of two levels of information that the government hides from us about UFOs and UAPs that we know about. One is a huge chunk, maybe even most or nearly all of UFO sightings, UAP sightings, uh, are our own government's secret projects. Um, the CIA, for instance, estimates that more than half of UFO sightings in the 1950s and early 60s were spottings of the U-2 spy plane when it was being developed, which was a literal UFO. It was a plane that didn't look like any known plane flying at an altitude that planes were not known to fly at speeds planes were not known to fly. If you were a commercial airline pilot, you know, flying from New York to San Francisco in the 1950s and you saw the U-2 flying above you, you called it in as a UFO and it was. Now, those sort of same projects over the years, you know, we now know the the SR-71 spy plane, the A-12 ox cart, the uh, stealth bomber, the stealth fighter in the 70s and 80s. Like these were all craft that sort of generated UFO sightings over the years. Um, There's some chunk of that that is what's going on today, sort of the next generation of secret drones and planes and covert operations, sort of et cetera, et cetera. There's another layer of this, which is some chunk of current UFO sightings are advanced adversary technology being tested against the United States. And the government is really sort of hinky about what its sensors pick up, what it does, what it sees, what it doesn't see. And so it sort of hides what it understands as adversary technology, you know, Chinese drones, Russian drones, Iranian drones, you know, maybe Tony Stark is up there building something in a mountain lab that, you know, is flying around the the West that the, you know, US is, is puzzled by. Um, But the government has this sort of massive sensor network around the world that it doesn't really tell us a lot about what it sees and what it knows and what it hears. Um, and, and remember, we, we sort of saw an example of this this summer with the Titan submersible, where the sort of the world searched for a couple of days, you know, are they alive? Are they not alive? You know, sort of what happened to these billionaires trying to reach the Titanic? And then they found the wreckage. And a few days later, it came out that basically the Navy said, Yeah, we actually heard the implosion in real time and knew that they were dead from the first second because of our uh, audio anti-submarine surveillance system in the North Atlantic. Um, But we just don't like to talk about it, so we didn't tell anyone. Um, You know, that stuff exists all over the world. So, you know, those are sort of two layers of the cover-up that we know about. Um, To me, though... What is interesting and troubling is I think that at the core of the U.S. government's cover-up of its knowledge and understanding of UFOs and UAPs is nothing, not something, which is to say that the government is covering up its ignorance, not its knowledge, and that the government actually doesn't know what these things are. And that John Brennan was basically saying something that was incredibly humbling and true, where he's like, there's something up there, we don't know what it is, and it puzzles us. And that that's an incredibly uncomfortable answer for a bureaucracy charged with protecting the American people to give. And I think you just don't see the signs of a large government cover-up of meaningful knowledge about extraterrestrial intelligence, you know, interstellar contact, advanced out-of-this-world technologies. And instead, the problem is the government doesn't know what these things are. And as a taxpayer and citizen, 
what concerns me is that it's not more interested in figuring out what the answers actually are. That like we should want our government to be more interested in UFOs than it actually is. So what's the evidence that they are not as interested in this as they should be? Because that's almost the definition of something which do we know, for example, that, oh, they could have 10 guys on this, but they only have two guys and they're not quite the best guys. How should we think about that? It, yeah. It, and the answer is, you know, sort of the classic, like, show me your budget and I'll show you your priorities that, you know, when you go back across 80 years, the government on and off for maybe 40 of those 80 years has had a UFO study effort of some kind or another at the Pentagon or at the Air Force. It's always tiny. It's like three guys here or like two enlisted Air Force personnel, a small office as part of a larger office in a, you know, Air Force base in the middle of the country. Um, you know, these are never programs that have any sort of high level officers assigned to them. It, they're never well funded. They're never capable of doing anything like the sort of real time investigation that you would want them to be doing. You know, these are like, it, it's sort of the far opposite of the men in black conspiracy where, you know, like the alien lands and instantly there are you know, shadowy government agents all around making people forget what they saw. Like, you go back over these sightings and if the Air Force investigator is able to get there, like, within three or four days after the fact, like, that's a pretty good record for them. The, there's just not the energy or the sort of high-level focus or the budget that the government ever takes this seriously. Man, and the way you set up this conversation in the book, obviously, is so interesting because now you have me thinking. This is another great example of like the war on terror transition to the great power competition transition in the sense that war on terror, obviously, U.S. has technological superiority. U.S. can decide time with the exception of 9-11, obviously. Post 9-11, we decide time, place, manner of what offense looks like. But in but in this case, we're talking about a world where we're competing with the China that in many ways is militarily at or, at or above our level. You're thinking, oh, do the Chinese have some form of technology that is superior, much in the way that in the 40s and 50s, you'd think that way. But at the same time, if we were telling this story in the 40s and 50s, we wouldn't be talking about, oh, you know, um, there's some really interesting stuff with the SR-71 or, oh, there's this really interesting um, stuff going on with stealth fighters in the 80s. So I guess, how do you think about that dynamic? Because we're, once again, in a transition period. Yeah. It, it, and and I think it's important to think about that because the we know that some chunk of this is advanced adversarial technology. We know that in part, because as I said, like the one of the few things that the Pentagon has said publicly about its renewed UAP interest is that it has discovered some of these drones that it didn't know about before. And by the way, this intersects with this summer, there was this, uh, you know, high level congressional hearing around UFOs, this high profile, you know, sort of self-proclaimed UFO whistleblower who came out and made a variety of claims uh, of uh, sort of, I would say, varying levels of specificity and likelihood about the U.S. government's UFO cover-up. And one of the things he said was effectively, like, the U.S. government has a UFO crash retrieval program that has recovered uh, unknown technology that the government believes is extraterrestrial. Now, when you sort of peel that back and unpack that a little bit, it's a claim that is a little less than where sort of the public conclusion of that ends up, which is, yes, the government has a UFO crash retrieval program. We have had one for a hundred years. 
it, it's based at Wright Patterson Air Force this Base. Is, this is this is just a long-standing thing. The, it, yes, and it traces its back its roots back to what was originally called the Foreign Technology Division of the Army Air Corps in World War One, and its job is to go around and pick up things that crash that we don't know what they are. Now, most of what they do is go around and pick up crashed enemy aircraft. This is how during World War Two. You know, we got Japanese Zeros and German Messerschmitt fighters. This is how during the Cold War, you know, we hoovered up every MiG that we could find anywhere around the world. Um, and I would imagine most of that team's job today is going around the world and collecting drones that crash from Iran and China and Russia, you know, maybe even sort of some allied type countries like Israel, you know, maybe we're sort of trying to, you know, track drones that they, they are making as well. Um, I would also believe that there is a warehouse that that unit has somewhere that's sort of filled with the things that they have collected that they don't know what they are yet. Um, you know, that is the UFO crash retrieval program has a warehouse of unknown technology. Um, that seems to me to be a pretty basic part of the reason that we go around and collect these adversary aircraft when they crash. I would also believe there's someone on that team who has looked at some of that stuff and made some comment along the lines of, wow, that looks like something I've never seen before. I'll bet that's, you know, that looks like alien technology to me. We all have that coworker who is like a little bit wacky and whose opinions are sort of outside of the standard deviation of the rest of the team. So every bit of that claim can be true, but it doesn't end where sort of the public hears that and, and hears the president of the United States was briefed in the situation room by people who said we have recovered alien technology. Like, I don't think that that's happened. And I don't think that that's what uh, has actually sort of transpired in the course of these conversations. But I do believe that you could have a UFO whistleblower who comes forward and says, I've been told the US government has a UFO crash retrieval program that has recovered unknown technology that people on the team think is alien technology. Like it's entirely possible that that's true and also still not alien technology at the end of the day. I was going to ask you, I was like, given the way you set that up, how do we even ascertain what's alien or extraterrestrial? And I was just realizing in sci-fi movies, books, whatever, the way they solve this narrative is you have a line, this element, it's not on the periodic table. Um, like that's kind of the way that you like ascertain that we actually, I, I highly doubt that we have the equivalent in like real life. I, I just like how you've set up, like how would this actually work? <laughs> yeah, well, and what I also, what's also interesting is when you get into this, Hollywood and pop culture has given us an entirely incorrect understanding of what that first contact narrative would be like. Um, you know, we sort of have this picture of, you know, getting the radio message from the alien civilization, um, uh, you know, that's ominous or, you know, a, a message of peace. Or you sort of have the other end, you know, the like Independence Day alien mothership appears over the White House lawn and you know destroys the white house and you know conquers earth we are so insignificant as a civilization planet and solar system that the chances that anyone or anything out there has the slightest understanding that we exist rounds down to zero and instead what our first encounter with an advanced extraterrestrial civilization is going to be is almost certainly 
um, what what Avi Loeb, the Harvard astronomy chair, says is basically the equivalent of like an empty plastic bag from a foreign civilization blowing through our solar system. You know, it's going to be a piece of space trash that may have come from a civilization that is, you know, eons away or has been defunct for an incredibly long period of time. Um, you know, sort of one of the things, again, that we misunderstand as we think about this is, you know, the math is on the side of the aliens. Like that is, I am absolutely convinced of that from my work on this book. You know, in the last 20 years, we have figured out, you know, not just that planets exist and are widespread across the solar system, across the universe, but that habitable planets are numerous across the universe. So numerous, in fact, that we now believe that there are a sextillion habitable planets in the universe. So life could be rare, but do you really think it's a one in sextillion chance? I think that life is probably very common across the universe and intelligent life is probably pretty common across the universe. The challenge is it's probably pretty far away and may not overlap with us. And we are an incredibly young solar system. We're about 4 billion years old in a 14 billion year old solar system, a 14 billion year old universe. Which means you could have had a billion year advanced civilization, you know, something that was so long lasting and so advanced that to us, it would be indistinguishable from God. And we might have missed it by a billion years. You know, it could have come and gone before our solar system even started to assemble into dust. You know, I was going to push back on you uh, when you said the insignificant who would take interest. But I was like, well, look, there's a there's a biologist who's obsessed with an anthill in the Amazon right now. But I think to the point that you just made, A, it's pretty easy to fly down to the Amazon and analyze anthills. And B, you don't have that time problem there too. So and I guess what I even wonder then too is, even within this entire framework, all of this is just based within human-centric constructs, right? So like another thing yes. sci-fi is obviously getting wrong um, is on every single level, it's default. And it's kind of funny, like Star Trek solves this problem by, well, actually all of the intelligent life in the Milky Way galaxy was seeded by another civilization. That's why Vulcans and humans could ultimately like come mate. That's why like Vulcan, uh, you know, a Klingons don't look that different. So it's kind of, even inside we have to do all these like deus ex machinas to make this framework even kind of make sense. But that's, that, that, that's really fascinating. Um, and, and by the way, that's not a crazy scenario. It, it's yeah. a theory that's called directed panspermia. And it's the idea basically that we exist here because another civilization sort of left the building blocks of life that became us. Mm -hmm. um, no less a figure than Francis Crick, the man who sort of discovered DNA and the double helix, like a relatively serious scientist, um, argued that directed panspermia was a sort of workable theory and that we might be sort of the equivalent of either sort of a science experiment by another civilization, or he had sort of this, you know, fun idea of basically like aliens stopping by to have a picnic on earth on their way to somewhere else and that basically like life on earth are the crumbs from their cookies that they left behind um and you know even carl sagan so carl sagan was in the 20th century probably you know the most famous astronomer of the 20th century um and was 
the leading proponent of SETI, the leading proponent of the search for extraterrestrial intelligence out there, and a huge skeptic that UFOs existed on Earth, mm. um, or at least alien you know, flying saucers existed on Earth. You Again, as we said, UFOs are real, but not what people think that they are. Um, but Carl Sagan's argument was, even as someone who doubted sort of UFOs as an alien phenomenon on Earth, his argument was aliens come to Earth on a regular basis, but it's only probably on average about every 100,000 years. And that sort of across, you know, eons and millions and billions of years, like all sorts of advanced civilizations may have stopped off here for one reason or another on their way to or from some other place but they probably only come every 100,000 years. So that thing that you see in the sky on Thursday night, it's really unlikely sort of statistically that last Thursday was the day that the aliens from Alpha Centauri popped by out of the last 100,000 years. You know, in these last few sections, I just want you to respond to this is a joke on Twitter, but it's actually a compelling argument against the alien side of the UFO phenomenon, which is any civilization with the capacity to travel um, the stars would just not be crashing at the rate that they're supposedly crashing. The number, like we, 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 we've basically solved the airline crash problem ourselves now. Um, it's hard to imagine the number of incidents um, occurring, um, separate from visitations. What's your response to that like kind of straightforward and like pretty intuitive argument about like which is more likely that we're crashing over to you know spacefaring civilization hasn't figured out autopilot or how to stabilize whatever their means of transportation is yeah it, 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 and i think that that's a real comment uh and 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 real point i think more broadly when you sort of take that step back um, the idea in some ways that aliens are visiting Earth in technology that we would even recognize is probably wrong. That there's a different scenario where our universe is incredibly thickly populated with alien craft and explorers and you know civilizations running from one interstate interstellar highway to another and that we just can't see it because we are so primitive in our own technology mm -hmm. um you know if you think about what it would take for our, our telescopes right now even in sort of near earth objects really would struggle to pick up anything much smaller than a football field. Mm. And that's sort of rocks traveling at normal speeds that are the size of a football field. When you begin to get into the physics of what it would take to travel at a fraction of the speed of light and to actually carry to actually cover any meaningful distance in outer space. We wouldn't even notice if there were, you know, smaller alien craft passing through our solar system on a regular basis at something like a fraction of the speed of light. You know, we don't have any technology that would detect that. And even if we did happen to capture a photo of it, you know, we would be looking at a single pixel in an image that we would then be like, oh, that's just a weird quirk of the camera. Like, let's ignore it and move on. You're talking about civilizations where they're probably, you know, again, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions, hundreds of millions of years more advanced than we are. So for the final question here, I'm obsessed with your um, invocation of a you know broader cinematic universe for your work, because you've written a bunch of like really interesting books that I know 
listeners and viewers would really appreciate. Um, you've got a book on D-Day coming out. You've contributed, uh, coming out, this will be um, next June. You've contributed to a book that's out in April, which focused on great power competition. You've been writing since 2007. I'd love for you just to articulate like, what is, what's like the grand theory of what you write about? Because it's it's seemingly random, but it's also not clearly. So love to hear your articulation of that. Yeah, I mean, basically everything I write about is uh, the intersection of national security technology and American politics. When I look at uh, a subject, you know, that's the lens that I normally come come at it. One of the things that I, um, you know, this, you know, I talked about this book relating a lot to um, my book on Watergate. I did a book in 2017 called Raven Rock. That's the story of the U.S. government's doomsday plan, sort of all of the weird stuff that would have happened during and after a nuclear attack during the Cold War, all of our weird continuity of government programs and presidential succession and doomsday bunkers and doomsday planes and um, all of those types of things, you know, civil defense efforts and, and, and things like that. Um, and what was so interesting to me in writing this book was how much it overlapped with Raven Rock that, um, you know, so much of the UFO story is this story of Cold War anxieties and the, you know, the fear of being overtaken in technological races in the space race, um, you know, the, the presidents being concerned about, um, you know, uh, adversary technology. Um, and, you know, w what I think is so poignant about the story of UFOs is it's not really a story about aliens at all. It's really a story about sort of humanity and politics and our search for understanding about where we fit into the universe and that to me was what was surprising about writing this book was at a really basic level like how spiritual this story really ends up being in the sort of human quest for understanding about ourselves here's the actual final question I would love to know to preview um, your next book. What's it like to write about D-Day and tell the stories of the you know soldiers, sailors who participated, allied and otherwise, knowing that we're in a period in history where massive armada-based invasions aren't just this retrospective thing. Like we're not just referencing Incheon um, in the Korean War. Oh yeah, the Marines landed, but now the Marines are just totally different now. Um, I've, I've been doing a lot of uh, World War II deep dives. So I just did Holland's history of Husky, which is um, taking Sicily, and that was the biggest armada. Yep. Um, then we do D-Day, obviously, and that was the even bigger armada. An uh, invasion of Taiwan would be even bigger than D-Day. So like, what's it? It's just so relevant in a way that I don't think the you of 2004 would have thought would be relevant. Not that that history isn't relevant, but you're like, oh, it's just like, you know, Band of Brothers. This is like a totally different era. I'd love to yeah. get your closing thoughts on that. My, my D-Day book will be out in June next year. It's called When the Sea Came Alive, and it's an oral history of D-Day, which again is, is related to and sort of based upon a book that I did in 2019. It's called The Only Plane in the Sky that was an oral history of 9-11. Um, that was sort of the story of 9-11 uh, told through the voices of the people who experienced that day, 480 Americans, morning to night, coast to coast. And uh, I got interested in D-Day for sort of the same reason that 9-11 works. I mean, it's, you know, it's one of the turning points of, it's probably the single most important day of the 20th century. And it was a mass event. You know, you have literally millions of people involved in that day. And too often, I think you write history knowing how it ends and the challenge with that and to me the power of oral history is it puts you back 
in the day knowing only the things that the people knew at the time as they were going through the day. And so, you know, 9-11, you're able to sort of see this moment from 8.46 to 9.03, where people say, people don't realize that we're under attack. You know, that people say, you know, oh, a plane hit the World Trade Center. It must have been a small plane, it must have been an accident. What a weird thing, and then go on about their day. Um, and for D-Day, what is so interesting to dive it back into that, and again, this is an important lesson for right now, is D-Day felt so uncertain to everyone on the Allied side who was involved, you know, will it succeed will the troops be thrown back into the english channel you know will they overcome the atlantic wall and the military truth is that amphibious landings almost always succeed and that what the allies had brought to that day was so much insurance that there was really no way that D-Day was going to fail. Whether the buildup would work later, you know, whether the bridgehead would achieve breakout, you know, those are sort of separate questions. And indeed, you know, one of the things is, you know, the, the, the Allied troops do get caught up in the 77-day battle for Normandy, where, you know, that is actually much more touch and go than a lot of people realize. But once the convoys sailed out of the English ports, D-Day was going to succeed. And it was really a question of sort of where and how much. And that even when you get to something like Omaha Beach, which is the, you know, the sort of famous killing ground of, um, uh, of D-Day, you know, the initial waves at Omaha Beach, you know, 80, 90, 100% casualty rates. Even by about 9 a.m., 10 a.m. that morning, there are American troops up on the bluffs of Omaha Beach sort of preparing to move inland. Um, and that, you know, that's not in any way to denigrate, uh, you know, the, the horror and the courage and the, the bravery of the people on, on Omaha Beach that morning. But the overwhelming force that we brought to D-Day um, is something that is truly astonishing to understand in, in, in retrospect as you sort of piece that history together. Well, that is a excellent preview. Uh, I know that a lot of folks will be interested um, in picking that up when it's out, but of course they first need to pick out the latest book that our conversation focused on. Um, Garrett, this has been so great. Thank you so much for joining me. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for chatting today.